Lord for our church, the service, and all the planning involved every Sunday. Uh, we are blessed to have the freedom to, to gather as a congregation. Thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're humbled that you love us, Lord, and show this in your creation daily. Please give us grace and understanding as we receive your truth in your word brought to us by Gavin this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Well, um, here we are. We are at the end of our Who Are We journey that we began at the start of this year. When we started this year back together as a congregation in this building, it was good for us to take stock and ask the question, who are we? So as a church, we went through the book of 1 Peter, looking at what is a Christian. We then looked at who we are as a church and then followed that with studying the book of Ephesians with a focus on who are we as individuals and our identity in Christ. And in the last month or so, we have been going through an overview of the book of Nehemiah. If we now have a better understanding of what it is to be a Christian, who we are as a church, and who are we as individuals in Christ, the question that Nehemiah helps us to answer as we start bringing this year to a close is what do we need to do now? Dan started our Nehemiah overview looking at chapters one to three and reminded us that we need to pray, plan, and put it into play. Then Jeremy Lind taught from chapters four to seven and focused on that fact that there is no opportunity without opposition. And most recently, Bradley Jubeer looked at chapters eight to 12, and we were reminded of the need for confession, the covenant, and focusing on Christ. And this brings us to our final chapter in the book of Nehemiah as we bring this book overview to, um, and our Who Are We series to a close for the year. Now, I feel a little bit of a, a scriptural um, cheapskate, really, because um, all the others had to bring a message and condense it out of three or four chapters. And I have only had to focus on one chapter in this overview. And I am really thankful for that. So today we're going to look at chapter 13, the last chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And if we're looking at the Old Testament, chronologically, it is the last chapter of the Old Testament to be written. Sometime between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah goes back to Persia, just as he promised King Artaxerxes he would. Now we don't know exactly how long Nehemiah was away in Persia, but it could have been up to nine years. And as an aside, Malachi is our last book of the Old Testament, and Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. The book of Malachi was written while Nehemiah was back in Persia, and it deals with a number of the same issues we see in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. But before we start looking at this chapter this morning, has anyone seen the movie the Secret Life of Pets. It was an animated movie from 2016 and was about a group of pets who were all normal and good when their masters were at home, but when their masters left for work, 
the pets got all so, up to all sorts of um, chaos and mischief. Now we, as a family, we had our own little secret life of pets this week. Many of you know we have a Samoyed dog called Bella. She's nearly nine years old and the most chill and relaxed animal, and she's always really well behaved. Well, on Tuesday night, we all left the house to go out to different things that evening. And in a soft moment, I decided to leave Bella inside rather than put her outside, as we would normally do if we were all going out. Well, when we got home, here was our super chill Bella, extremely hyped up and running around like a crazy thing, nipping at the kids, and she was just hypo. And we thought that was her just excited that we'd come home, but no. It turns out as we went down to our room and Lisa found that she had got into a bag that had one of those dark chocolate oranges in it. They're shaped like an orange, but they're solid chocolate, dark chocolate. And she got it out of the bag, then out of the box, and then out of the plastic container that was in the box and had eaten every last part of this 157 gram solid dark chocolate orange, including the tinfoil wrapping. <laughs> so we start Googling how much dark chocolate can a dog eat before it gets fatal? And the numbers don't look good. So long story short, a quick trip to the after hours vet at 11.30 p.m., wondering if they're gonna have to pump her stomach or something worse but thankfully it ends up she is okay. And partly because I underestimated how much she weighed. Now this is usually something I do for myself. <laughs> so we, all we had to do was spend the night monitoring her in case she started vomiting. It's great fun. Thankfully she didn't. So when we are home with her, she is such a good dog but she took the opportunity to head down a sneaky, sinful path when the leader of the house was away. And that's a little bit like this book of Nehemiah. In chapters 8 to 12, while Nehemiah was with the people of Israel, everything was going great. The wall was finished and they'd rededicated the wall, they'd rededicated themselves back to the Lord. They had confessed their sins and made a covenant with the Lord to obey his law. But unfortunately, when Nehemiah left to go back to Persia, this dedication to the Lord and his word started to falter, and they slipped back into old habits of turning their back on God and his ways. And we see this all through Israel's history. When they had a strong godly leader around, they tended to be obedient. But when the leader was absent, they would slide back into their sinful ways. The book of Judges is full of this rinse and repeat cycle of Israel, asking God for a leader, God gives them a leader, the people are obedient, the leader dies, the people fall back into sin, they ask God for a leader, and it keeps on going. And this is the story of chapter 13. Nehemiah comes back after his time in Persia, and he finds a people who have backslidden and fallen away from God and back into their sinful habits. And this challenges us to look at ourselves. 
Are there areas of our own lives that we have fallen back into sin or our old ways or habits that are not glorifying God in the way we are living? What am I going to do to change this? So please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. So I've entitled this message, Avoiding the Pitfalls. And the main takeaway for us today is God's people should strive for obedience in all areas of life. And we will have a look at five key points to take away from this chapter that remind us to stay the course of obedience to God and to his word. Nehemiah 13 shows us five pitfalls of, or sins that we can easily fall into if we don't keep our eyes fixed on God. Praise God that we have his word to read and, and highlight to us the danger of falling into sin. So let's look at our first three verses of Nehemiah 13, which Ephraim is going to read for us. Um, so I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so Nehemiah 13, verse 1 to 3. Uh, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned, that curse, or turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So our first point to look at today is, as believers, we should not be compromised by the culture around us. So here the people of Israel are reading from the book of Moses, most likely the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they have been reminded of areas in their lives that they had moved away from what Scripture had taught. Have you ever had that feeling when reading the Word of God? God told them not to mix with the Ammonite or Moabite people because of what they had done to Israel in the past. In Numbers 22 to 24, we read the story about Balaam and the talking donkey. Now, this is way before Shrek and his talking donkey. Here, Balak, the king of Moab, asked Balaam, the magician, to put a curse on Israel as they came into his land. But instead of, instead of seeking peace, the Moabites sought to curse Israel, but God got Balaam to provide a blessing to Israel four times. So the Moabites and the Ammonites were enemies of God from the start, and that had continued. So remember Tobiah, who we have been reading about in Nehemiah. He was a Ammonite. We read in Nehemiah 2 about Tobiah the Ammonite um, being deeply disturbed that Nehemiah wanted to build the wall and throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah is his enemy, always trying to stop what Nehemiah was called to do. And God knew that if his people led the, let the Ammonites and the Moabites into their lives, they would end up pulling his people away from himself. God knew the hearts of his people and that they could easily fall into the sin of worshipping the false gods of the other nations. The Ammonites and the Moabites were idolaters and practiced child sacrifice. They had not shown any hospitality 
um, to the people of Israel and instead chose to curse them and be enemies of God. Now, there are many times in Israel's history where either the nation or a leader has disobeyed God's word and got comfortable with God's enemies, which has pulled them away from God and down a path of sinful ways. We see this with King Solomon. He started off really strongly seeking to follow God and lead his people in God's law, but then he took his eyes off God and started making allegiances with the enemy and and intermarrying with those that go against God and then slowly but surely lost his focus on God and got pulled away from the plan that God had for him. Friends, we have to guard ourselves against the same thing and not get comfortable with the world and the culture around us. When we start compromising God's word and allowing ourselves to start doing things we shouldn't so that we feel like we fit into this world, then we are in danger of slowly being pulled away from God. And it can be so easy. It could be going out with the boys from work and ending up going to clubs or places you know you shouldn't be at. Or laughing at inappropriate jokes with the uni friends and finding over time you are no longer a witness amongst them. Friends, don't get me wrong. We need to be in the world as we are called to make disciples of all nations. It tells us that in Matthew 28. But we are to be separate from the world. But our separation isn't necessarily a physical separation, but we need to separate our minds, our hearts, our priorities from what our culture says we should be like. Our eyes should be on God, not on the things of this world. We need to be salt so that people can see Jesus, but we need to guard ourselves about getting complacent or compromising ourselves where in the end there is no difference between the world and God's people. And there is a tension here for us to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to share the gospel to the world, but not succumb to the disobedience um, of God's word in the process. So let's look at our next few verses, verses four through to nine. All right, this is four to nine. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. From the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by, pre- by preparing him for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Our second point today is as believers, we should guard our temple from the enemy. 
So here we see Elisha, who was the high priest, the spiritual leader of Israel, letting Tobiah, the Ammonite, one of Nehemiah's and God's main enemies, to have storage space in the courts of the house of God. And not just any space, but the space that was set aside for the offerings and tithes for the Levites and priests and other people doing the Lord's work and other items used in the temple. This all took place while Nehemiah had gone back to Persia and he found this out when he came back to Jerusalem. And this was wrong on so many levels. Firstly, Eliashib was supposed to be spiritually leading the people of Israel, but instead he had backslidden and compromised so much that he had let one of the main enemies of Israel store his household stuff in the house of God. Secondly, the storage room was supposed to be used for the offering and tithes for those serving the Lord, which were the Levites and priests, and for other and for storing other articles for the temple. And as we will see further on in this chapter, if there was no storage for these offerings, it looks like the offerings stopped being given. Elisha desecrated the temple by letting the enemy come into the temple and set up camp in the house of God. He dishonoured God and God's glory by his actions. And these verses tell us that Nehemiah was very angry and his response was to throw out all of Tobiah's household items and reinstated the storage room to be used for its rightful purpose, for the offerings and other items of the temple. Now, Nehemiah's righteous anger sounds a lot like Jesus's righteous anger against the money changes in the temple in Matthew 21, 12 to 13, where it says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So how is this applicable to us? Well, as Christians, we don't have a temple building made of stone and wood, but we do have a temple, and that temple is us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit dwells within us. How are we guarding ourselves from the enemy, sin, that desires to set up camp in our mind and our heart to lead us away from God? Are we like Elisha and letting sin come into our hearts and minds and thoughts and allowing these sins to dwell in us, giving it space in the good places that should be reserved for godly things? Is our temple so full of sin that there is no space for God or his Holy Spirit? Are we dishonouring God by letting sinful thoughts and desires take up residence in us? Or does our sinfulness grieve us like it grieved Nehemiah? 
Are we willing to take a stand and clean out our temple like Nehemiah did and throw out the sins that are holding us back from being who God wants us to be? Friends, what are you willing to throw out of your temple? Is it the things you watch on TV or on your laptop or phone? Or is it your thought life? The things you think about that you know are not of God? Is it a habitual sin you want to stop but are struggling to do so? Remember, your body is the temple, the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. And it is only with God's help through the Holy Spirit that we can clean out our temple. And remember what Nehemiah did after throwing out all of Tobiah's things. He brought back into the temple all the things of God that should have rightfully been there. We need to allow God to help us throw out the sins that are holding us back and then bring back in what honours God. Get back into the reading of his word. Grow your prayer life, fellowship with other believers and keep each other accountable. Fill your temple with the things of God rather than the things of this world and the sins that will so easily take up space if we let them. Let's continue our reading and look at our third group of verses, verses 10 to 14. 10 to 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and sat them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shalemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Bediah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakir, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I've done for the house of my God and for his service. So our third point today is, as believers, we should support the work and workers of the church. So the problem here is that the Levites, the tribe who were given the job by God to be the priests and to serve in the temple, would be, and would be supported and fed by the rest of Israel through their offerings, um, etc., that would normally be stored in the temple. But as we read in the previous verses, Eliashib had given that storage space to Tobiah. And it would seem that as there was no space to store the offerings for the Levites, the people slipped into disobedience to God's word and stopped giving. This then forced the Levites to go back into the fields to be able to support uh, their families and to feed themselves. This then took away from the job God had intended them to do, which was to serve in the temple. This then would affect the work of the temple, which would have had a part to play in less people coming to the temple to worship. Eliashib's sin of letting Tobiah use the storage reserved for the offerings had a devastating spiral effect on the spiritual well-being of the nation. Nia understands this and sees the effects of this disobedience. And once addressed by Nehemiah, the people, to their credit, 
start obeying God's law and start bringing back the tithes and offerings to the temple. Now that Tobiah's stuff had been thrown out and the storage space in this temple is returned to its true function. So again, how does this apply to us? We don't have a physical temple, but we do have church. And as believers and regular attendees of a local church, we should be giving generously of our time, our talents and our assets to promote the work of the gospel and furthering the kingdom of God through our church. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Tithing and giving are part of our worship to God in our church. Our giving should be given because we want to give, not because we are forced to give. We should want to support our church as it seeks to be a light in its community, promoting the gospel and furthering God's kingdom. So let's continue and read through verses 15 to 22. 15 to 22. Uh, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food Tyrians also who lived in the city bought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought back, on, back in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember, this is also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I love that. I will lay hands on you. That's fantastic. I'm going to remember that. It's a memory verse to kind of stick in the mind. I will lay hands on you. So our fourth point is... As believers, we should put time aside to worship. While Nehemiah was away in Persia, the people took their eyes off God and instead of keeping the Sabbath day holy and as a time to worship and rest, they had slipped back into the sins of their forefathers and were trading and buying and selling on the Sabbath day. When Nehemiah came back, Trade was in full swing on the Sabbath and the people were blatantly breaking God's law of keeping the Sabbath holy. It seems like the people had forgotten completely about God and were now focused on work 
or everyday life, rather than resting and focusing on God. So why is it important to put time aside for God, to take a day out of our week to purposely focus on God and to worship Him and to rest? God in His graciousness knows we can get busy and we will fill our days with so many things if we don't stop and take the time to remember Him. Putting the time aside for God provides balance for our lives. In Mark 2 verse 27, Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was made for our benefit. God knew the importance for us to have a day of the week where we can direct our thoughts and our actions towards God. Now, we're not limited to just having Sunday as our day to put aside time to remember God. We have many in our congregation who are in the health professions, such as nurses and doctors, or people who work shift work, or farmers. Sometimes our jobs don't allow us to come to church on a Sunday because you are rostered on to work on those days. So for those people, it's about putting time aside a day in the week that you are off to stop and worship and remember our Creator. But we shouldn't just limit putting time aside to remember God to just one day a week. This is something we should be doing on a daily basis. Are you taking time out of your day to spend time with God? In his word, in prayer, praising him for all he has done. Are you putting time aside each day to slow down and nourish your relationship with God? Maybe we need to get rid of some of the things that we fill our days with that are taking away time we could be spending with God. For most of us, me included, if we spent half an hour or an hour less on our phones each day and put that time into time with God, we would have a great relationship with our Lord and we would know our Bible so much more. Let's look at our last verses for today. Verses 23 to 31. All right, 23 to 31. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering and appointed times and for the first fruits. 
Remember me, oh my God, forget. So our fifth point is, as believers, we should only date and marry other believers. And this last point can be a tough one because for some here, you may be in love with someone, either a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse who doesn't know God. And this is really personal. Love is a strong emotion to work through. But in these verses, we see Nehemiah dealing with this issue of the Jews marrying people who weren't Jews and fathers giving their daughters to people who didn't know God and vice versa. And he is really angry to the point of beating some people up and pulling their hair out. And he curses them and makes them make an oath not to do it anymore. But this was happening all through the people of Israel, even within the family of Eliashib, the high priest. His grandson was married to the daughter of Sanballat, who we read about in chapter 2, verse 10, who was a cohort of our friend Tobiah and who was an enemy of God and Nehemiah's and was continually conspiring to disrupt God's plans for the wall and the people of Israel. But before we continue, it's really important to note that this isn't a race issue. This is a spiritual issue. Why was this such a big issue for Nehemiah? Firstly, it was in violation, a violation of the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4 um, says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Secondly, the people had made an oath in Ezra 9 and 10 that they would stop this practice and reaffirm that oath with when they made a covenant, to Nehemiah, a covenant in Nehemiah 10, 30. So the people were disobeying God's law again. Nehemiah knew how dangerous this would be. For us, we don't come under that Mosaic covenant as such. We have a new covenant through Jesus Christ, but the principle is still the same. The New Testament talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, um, that's what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, this verse isn't solely related to marriage, but it does incorporate that. And as we read, read in, Jerusalem, in Deuteronomy 7, God knew it would have the effect of turning the people away from following him and to serving other gods. So if you are dating or thinking of dating someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their saviour, you need to reconsider this. We often go into these relationships thinking we will change the person, and sometimes that will happen. But more often than not, and I've seen it many times, we end up compromising ourselves and falling away from following God. Our relationship with the Lord needs to be the number one relationship that we have. If the person we love doesn't have that same relationship with the Lord, we miss out on being able to share with them what is the most important thing in our lives. I know that I am second in my wife Lisa's life and I wouldn't have it any other way. I want it to be that way because the Lord should rightfully 
be number one in her life. But if you are married to a non-believer, then love them with all your heart and keep praying for them. Live a life that reflects, um, live a life that reflects Jesus so that they may see the love of Christ in you. In this chapter, Nehemiah reminds us of five pitfalls we can easily fall into. And as believers, we should be aware and careful of. But in reality, there are a lot more areas that we should be careful of in our lives. Here we see a people who have fallen back into sin after rededicating themselves to God previously. And we see God who loves them enough to bring someone back to rebuke them for their sins and call them back to God in repentance. God seeks obedience from us. Is that something that we seek to do ourselves? Friends, we see ourselves in this chapter. The people of Israel were a lot like us as a nation and as individuals. They had been split up and were in different places, just like we were a few years ago. They went through a big rebuild, just like we did recently. They were convicted of sins and repented and rededicated themselves to God, just like many of us here have been through. And they slipped back into sin and let the enemy back into their temple, just like we all are prone to do sometimes. It is so easy for us to fall back into old and comfortable ways and sins, but we are called to guard our hearts, otherwise the sin that starts off small ends up taking over our hearts and our minds. Friends, we can be so thankful that we also see a gracious God who cares enough about us not to leave us in our sins a God who puts people across our path or reminds us through his word of the things that pull us away from him and give, gives us an opportunity to come back to him through repentance and forgiveness. This is the same God who poured out his grace, his love and his mercy on us when he sent his one and only son into this world to die for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to God. This is the God of Nehemiah, and it is the God of you and me. So as we finish today, we ask ourselves the question. We ask it again, what do we need to do now? And I think we can find part of that answer in Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, where it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, let's be people who want to get rid of the sin that entangles us. Live lives that glorify God 
and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy and love. We thank you uh, for these words in Nehemiah that challenge us. And we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, but you, you bring people across our path or you bring, and you brought us your word that remind us of where we need to be. And Lord, may we desire, Lord, to, to get rid of the sin that entangles us to live lives that glorify you. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This we pray and ask in your son's holy name. Amen.